You can open your Bibles, if you will, to First Peter. We're returning back again to this wonderful epistle as we work our, our way through this. Our exposition today takes us to chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. And as you're turning there, I want to remind you that Scripture often speaks about the church of Jesus Christ using different word pictures to describe the church. I mean, any of you think of a word picture that, that Christ uses, the Bible uses to describe the church? Does one come to mind? What? The bride of Christ, right? Revelation... Or, yeah, Ephesians chapter 5 talks about husbands ought to love their wives as Christ loved the church because the church is His bride. And Revelation 19 talks about the consummation of history when the church has made herself ready. It will become the bride of Christ. Good, the bride. What else? Another one comes to mind? Uh, yeah, Roger, do you have one? A building. Yeah, 1 Peter's going to talk about a building. So we'll kind of hold off on that one. 1 Peter's talking about a building. Several places it talks about building. Ephesians 2, towards the end, talks about how, how Christ, the cornerstone, the apostles of the foundation. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 speaks about the building. Right? That's a good one. And we'll get to that one. What's about another one? Body. Right? 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the different people of the body. Some are ears and some are eyes and some are hands and some are feet. But God has so composed all the body to work together just as He has desired. Other illustrations? I think I'm drawing a blank. Maybe you are. Maybe not just the what? A vine and a branch, right? Um, John 15. Jesus said, just you abide in me. I am the vine, you're the branch. And we get our life from Him. That's a picture of the church, absolutely. A couple other pictures that, uh, that come to mind. A temple. He talks about how we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, speaks about that. You know, I've got my notes. Several others here. What are they? I've forgotten them as well. A flock. That's right. Christ calls us a sheep, and yet He is the shepherd, the guardian of our souls. First Timothy chapter three speaks about how we are a household. How members relate to one another's family. How people are called one another brothers and sisters, and we ought to treat others such the case. Well, today. As I already mentioned, we're going to see this building metaphor being used of the church. And as I read this text, I want you to see all the building metaphors that come up. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. It's interesting that in every single verse in this passage we see the word stones coming up. In verse 4 it speaks about how we come to a living stone. In verse 5 it speaks about how we ourselves are living stones. Verse 6 it talks about this choice stone that God laid in Zion. 
In verse 7, it speaks about this stone that was rejected. And in verse 8, it speaks about how people stumble over this stone. Also, we see the words building and builders mentioned a few times. Like in verse 5, we see these people building of a spiritual house. We see in verse 7, the builders rejecting the stone. The building supply that they rejected. They didn't want to use that building supply. Now, in our culture today, when we build our homes, we often build them out of wood. Take pine and put up the studs. For larger buildings, we use steel. But in Peter's day, the predominant material they used in Palestine at that time was stone. In fact, you remember when they built the, the temple, it was made out of wood. That was something very special. They took the cedars from Lebanon and they hired King Hiram of Lebanon to bring all of this stone and this, all this wood, actually, that they built this temple from. There were stones, but a lot of wood was involved. That was very special because for the most part, they used stones. And in this passage, uses this fact to describe the community of believers as stones who are involved in the building of the building that Christ is building. So it is interesting, this passage, though, isn't really so much about the church as God's building. That's kind of like a secondary feature to it. This passage has more to do with our relationship to Christ, the living stone, and involves us coming into this building as a part of our relationship in arriving and approaching it, Christ. We are living stones because He is the chief stone. Many refuse to come to this stone. So it's all about access to God is what this text is about, how we approach Him. And so my message this morning is entitled Living Stones. I, I, I outlined this several different ways, but here's the outline I, I came up with. There's lots of different ways to approach this. But I wanted to talk to us about living stones. It says it right there in verse 4, coming to Him as to a living stone. So here's what living stones do. They come to Him. Living stones come to Him. Verse 4, and coming to Him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Now, Peter's thought at this point moves naturally from the previous section to this one. Last week, we looked at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, in which Peter exhorts us to desire the pure milk of the Word. Right? Desire the truth of the Gospel. Desire the Scriptures. And one of the reasons we ought to do so, as it says in verse 3, is because of the kindness of the Lord. He ends verse 3 by saying this, If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord... You know, if someone is kind to you, you are naturally drawn to them. I know as I've noticed people over the years, one thing has become evident. That those who are kind and gracious and loving and gentle and giving never lack a flock of people following after them, desiring to be with them. People are naturally drawn to those who are kind to them. But you show me one who is grumpy and harsh with their words and one who is judgmental, I'll show you someone with few friends. Because people don't like to just rub up against grumpy people. That's just how it is. Scrooge lived by himself, right? And so also it is with people. And so it also is with God. 
God is kind and gracious and loving and compassionate. He gives every reason for us to come to Him. And we come, we see that He's good. As the psalmist says in Psalm 34, Taste and see that the Lord is good. And so we see His kindness and we are drawn to that. In fact, God uses kindness even to draw unbelievers to Himself. Romans 2.4, The kindness of God leads you to repentance. And so here in verse 4, Peter describes us after tasting of the kindness of God. Verse 4 speaks about us coming to Him. Coming to our merciful and loving God. Now in verse 4, he's not describing us as coming by way of an act of salvation. What's one repents from his son and turns to Christ. Rather, he's talking here about believers who have tasted the kindness of the Lord who are coming to Him. And we may come in different ways. We may come in praise. Right, offering up to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving like we did in a time of singing. It may be in a time of need, right? great need in your life. And so we draw near to the throne of grace. We might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But it's coming to this living stone. And indeed, Jesus is a friend of sinners who receives all who come to Him. And so living stones do come. But however we come to Him, we come to one who is described here by Peter as a living stone. This is a veiled reference to the resurrection. Jesus isn't some dead stone in a pagan temple someplace. Rather, Jesus is a stone that's alive and well. Yes, Jesus died, but He rose again and He lives forever. And that's why He ever lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God in faith. And though we as believers in Christ may indeed come to Jesus, as living stones do, there are many who refuse to come to Him. Peter identifies these in the next phrase. He says, We come to this living stone which has been rejected by man. There's lots of people who reject this stone. And one of the things I find interesting about the Bible is that the Bible doesn't shrink back from describing people who live in unbelief. It describes them immensely. And here it describes them as people who simply reject Him. They reject this living stone. That hasn't caught God off guard. It's not as if God has said, Hey, everybody should be coming to me. Because He knew full well that they wouldn't come. Psalm 2 says, The kings of the earth take their stands and the rulers together against the anointed. And they they, they shake their fists at Him. And they, they say, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Seeking to rebel against the king. David prophesied of that. And when Jesus came to his own people, they refused to receive him. They heard his claims, they saw his deeds, they witnessed his life, and they hated him. And they ended up crucifying the Lord of glory. So they rejected him. And when you all boil it down, why is it they crucified him? They crucified Jesus because he exposed their sin. And that's what they hated. Psalm 2. Let us take His fetters apart. We want to live and do what we want to do. We don't want to be bound by His rules and regulations. Jesus said, The light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. And they rejected Him the time when He was on earth and they still reject Him today. Many people do. It doesn't take much to pick up a newspaper and see how our nation is continually straying from Him. You turn on the evening news and all you read about is people who have rebelled against the Lord. It doesn't take much to be in a public place and hear the name of our Lord blasphemed. It's easy. And though men may reject the stone, as we see here, it really doesn't matter because there's one who has accepted the stone. If you look there, 
the end of verse 4 it says, but this one who's been rejected is choice and precious in the sight of God. Choice and precious in the sight of God. And you know what? It's the only thing that matters. It's that God has accepted Christ. I mean, think with me about an owner or president of a corporation. The older owner is old, ready to retire, thinking about passing on his business, selling it, doing whatever. And suppose this owner decides to pass the business on to his son. What's going to take place? Owner's going to pass the business on to his son. Doesn't matter what others think. If those in the company reject this decision and think that they know better, it doesn't matter because the owner has all the rights and privileges. He says, I have seen my son and he's the chosen one and he's precious in my sight. I'm giving the company to him. People reject it. Well, they can leave and the son who will be the new owner and president will be able to find willing workers to take their place and will continue on. Because ultimately what matters is the opinion of the owner. And so it is with God the Father and Christ. It doesn't matter that Jesus was rejected by man. God has accepted him. And God has appointed him as the foundation of the church. Those who reject him are free to go their own way. It's not going to change God's choice of the foundation cornerstone. Jesus, it says here in verse 4, is the chosen stone. He's the one whom God elected to be the cornerstone. In fact, from long ago, God chose Christ. Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold, my servant whom I am uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Long before Christ even came, he says, Here's my servant. He is my chosen one. I have selected him to be the chief stone. He's the one that's high and exalted. And when Jesus walked on earth, God made it clear that this is the one whom God had chosen. Peter and James and John and Jesus were up on a mountain. The appearance of Jesus was made exceedingly white. His um, appearance was changed. He was transformed, as we say, transfigured. And out of heaven a voice came, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to Him. God even saying in the life of Jesus that He was the chosen one. And we are to listen to Him. And some do. Some come to Him. Verse 4 begins. But some reject Him. Let's return even to the illustration of the owner of the president of the company. He points his son as the next president. I can think about all different types of reasons why people in the company can refuse it. They can say, well, you know, he's got a silver spoon that's been handed to him on a platter and he's never worked down here with us. He doesn't know what it's like here in the shop. They could say that. And there might be some truth to that. They might say, well, he doesn't have the ability to run the business. His father was a high energy, type A entrepreneur who went and did and accomplished great things and built this business. But the son isn't like that. He can't run this business. And and there might be truth to that. Maybe the son doesn't have the vision to go forward. Which means the workers are saying, he can't cast away. He doesn't know how to change with the times. He just does what he does and the company is headed for disaster. They might be right in all of these things. But with this choice stone that God has accepted, people have no excuse. None of these excuses will ring true. Jesus began the church. So he's, he's the owner who began the business. 
It was through His death and resurrection the church began. Jesus worked on the shop floor. He demonstrated what it meant to give of Himself for the church. He shed His own blood for the church. And Jesus can sympathize with all of us because He has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And Jesus is very capable of running the universe. Anyone who rebels against Jesus has no good reason to turn against Him. The bottom line is because they don't want to be governed by Jesus. But regardless of what they want, God has chosen Christ to be the head of the church because from God's perspective, Jesus is precious in His sight. That's what verse 4 says. It means He was one who God considered worthy, one who God wanted to honor in this way, this chosen stone. He's precious to God and He's precious to other living stones who come to Him. Well, as we continue on through into verse 5, we see our second point this morning, that living stones not only come to the living stone, but living stones also work for Him. Now, I struggle with this point, whether to say are built in Him, but, you know, I, I, I picked this phrase, they work for Him, mostly from this priest terminology, it's the priest's work, so living stones also work. Look what he says there in verse 5. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Picture Jesus building this church. Maybe you've seen an old house or an old chimney or an old wall which has a bunch of smooth stones in it of all different shapes and sizes. You've seen a house like that or a wall like that? Greg, I think your grandmother's place. Does it have a chimney like that or something? Yeah, I've seen lots of chimneys like to do this. I remember being in a house of one, one man. He did a whole wall. They had the privilege of building their house. They did a whole wall that's just kind of stones. They kind of jet out a little bit, and it makes it fancy decorations. Kind of old-style modeling, but it's kind of nice. Now, I've never been there when such a uh, wall is being built. But I can imagine what took place is that the mason saw this... Um, place started with some stones, put them on the foundation, slapped some mortar on there, and then it began to get rough. And then, then he went over the stone pile, and like somebody working on a jigsaw puzzle said, what would work here? And picks up a stone and, and then, then places it in the wall. And then as soon as that is, puts some more mortar. Yep, that fits there. And then there's a different shape and different sets of stones. And, and always going through this puzzle to figure out how it is the wall can actually build. Choosing its stone perfectly to place it exactly where it should go to build this wall or this house. And this is what Peter envisioned church being built up with. We all are living stones. And rather than having physical stones, Jesus is talking about having this pile of believers there that He is pulling from. And He takes each one of us and considers how it is that we ought to fit best into the church. And then He places it there in which He is building and as Jesus places us, the wall and ceiling and floor becomes evident. And He places us exactly where He pleases. As it says in 1 Corinthians 12, that God has placed the members of the body, each one of them in the body, just as He desired. God takes us and places us exactly where we are to go. As stone is placed upon stone, we see a physical house. So also, people are placed upon people and we see this spiritual house. 
beginning to take shape. And you can try to picture what this would be like, kids especially. Imagine this pile of people, right? And you, and you pull one up and you go, boom, and you slap them on there like a big dog pile. And you can see the, the legs springing out here and arms are out here and everything like that. And you can try to picture it like that. Or you can say, you know what, this is just a metaphor. This is a picture he's talking about. It's not a physical house. It is a spiritual house that is being built. And the people in this spiritual house, those making up this spiritual house, have spiritual duties to offer up as well. If you look, it says that here there's a holy priesthood. That's how you're being built up. To offer up spiritual sacrifices. And again, these illustrations are being taken from the Old Testament before the time of Christ when God was, was teaching us of what it meant to to come into His presence. We needed a sacrifice to come into His presence. We needed a priest. We needed someone to be our intermediator, our, our mediator between us and God. In the Old Covenant, God established with the nation of Israel. Priests were needed to slaughter animals and offer them on the altar for sacrifices for sins. And with the confession of sin, appropriate sacrifice was made. And due to our sinful nature, sins are constantly committed. And so a priest was always needed to be around, to always offer up these sacrifices. These priests were always around, busy doing their duties. I've heard it mentioned before, there was no chair in the tabernacle because the priest was always busy doing his work. Now today, we don't need a priesthood any longer because Jesus Himself offered up the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He has become the mediator of a better covenant. He is our approach to God the Father. We simply need to believe in Him and our sins are washed away. So Peter isn't telling us now to offer, offer physical animal sacrifices. Rather, he talks about spiritual sacrifices that we need to offer. And so I say, what are these spiritual sacrifices? Well, it's hard exactly to know. But there are some passages in the New Testament that describe Christian activities as being sacrifices to God. Like, for instance, Hebrews 13, verse 15 says, Through Him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips that give thanks to His name. Just as in the Old Testament, the priests engaged in their worship of God with all these activities, so one of our priestly activities is with our lips to sing praise to our name. It's called the sacrifice of praise. The very next verse in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16. Again, the terminology is used, and this time the sacrifice doesn't come from our lips, but from our hands and our feet and from our pocketbooks. Listen to Hebrews 13, verse 16. And do not neglect doing good and sharing. Doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. This verse tells us, giving of our time and the giving of our finances and of our resources to others is a sacrifice to God. It's a sacrifice to help others who are in need. It may cost you Saturday to help you serve others. It may, it may cost you some money to purchase food or clothing or some other gifts for somebody who needs something. These are sacrifices to God. So, praise, sacrifice of praise, doing good and sharing. Also, Philippians 4, verse 18 is interesting. In this verse, Paul identifies giving to Christian ministry as a sacrifice. Paul wrote to the church at Philippi saying, I've received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. We assume that was a financial gift to Christian ministry. 
He says, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And again, there's that terminology, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God as you give to Christian ministry. And these, these verses give you a pretty good idea of what constitute Christian sacrifice today. But there's another one which takes this terminology and expands it far just beyond just praise and giving. It speaks about our whole lives. Romans 12.1, many of you have memorized this. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, which is your spiritual service of worship. Just as the lambs on the altars were killed and burned and completely dedicated to God, so also ought we to consider our bodies ready and willing to be laid there on the altar to be given to God as these spiritual sacrifices. Paul said, Present your bodies as living sacrifices. So I think that our sacrifice includes all forms of Christian piety as we give ourselves to Him and His work. We worship to God, love to others, sacrifice sharing the gospel, encouraging one another with our words, serving one another with our gifts, helping the poor among us, praying for others, teaching others, even giving a cold drink to one who needs it. Just all Christians are... So we give ourselves to God. I mean, you think about a priest in the Old Testament. Isn't that a picture of a priest? One who is totally dedicated and giving, given over to God. Now, we don't need priests today, but you just think about the Roman Catholic Church. They have priests wrongly theologically. But what do these men do? They give their lives completely. Take a vow of celibacy. They oftentimes live in and around the church and that's like all they do. That's what a priest is. You think about Hannah, the Old Testament story of Hannah. She was barren and earnestly pleaded for a son. She said, God, if you give me a son, I will dedicate him completely to the Lord. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. So she brought God worked in her. She conceived, brought forth Samuel, Samuel, which means I've asked of the Lord or to ask of the Lord. I've asked of him. He's given me the sign. As soon as he was weaned, Hannah took him up to Jerusalem, presented him to Eli, explained the story and says, I've dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. Gave him there. It's the priest. And then Hannah and Elkanah, her husband, returned back to Ramah, where they were from. But Samuel stayed with Eli, the priest. That's what a priest is. One who's completely dedicated in all his life and all his way to serving the Lord. And Peter's careful, though, to remind us of all of our activities. Or as I have said, work that takes place reminds us that it's only acceptable through Jesus Christ. Our deeds of love and mercy apart from Him are nothing. But through the trusting in the work of Jesus Christ, our priestly activities become acceptable to God. And I think what it means is that we're not taking credit for our works, but we're trusting in Christ to work through us. We're trusting His blood on the cross is what ultimately sanctifies and purifies all our Christian service. When we give, we're not given to be recognized by others. We're praying. We're not being praying so as to be noticed by other men to be spiritual. When we fast, we're not fasting so that other knows, others know of our great sacrifice that we're, we're giving. We serve others. We're not looking for recognition. We give praise to God. 
it's His approval that we want. And in this way, our, our ministry and our sacrifices come through Jesus Christ. We're just trusting in Him. We're seeking to serve and please Him and Him alone. Now at this point, the question of application comes. Are you performing your priestly duties? How good a priest are you? You know, you might think about priests. We think about someone leading up, up, up front at a church. But you know what? I'm not a priest. Who are the priests of Rock Valley Bible Church? We all are priests. We're the priesthood of believers. It's what this is talking about. We are living stones. He's talking to these scattered believers. We are all priests. And so I ask you, are you regularly presenting spiritual sacrifices to the Lord? You know, not every priest in the Old Testament was a good priest. Samuel was a blessing. But Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, weren't. Oh, to be sure, they were going through their religious priestly activities. But they weren't doing them properly. They were skinning the fat off the sacrifice and taking more than what they should have burned more. But they kept more for themselves. Furthermore, there was sexual immorality among them. God wasn't pleased with them. Though they're involved in lots of religious activities, they weren't offering up the sacrifices according to what they should have done. Even Samuel's sons turned out to turn aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Samuel's sons weren't good priests. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, weren't good priests. They offered strange fire on the altar. God killed them. Uzzah, one of the Kohathites, I think he was a priest. He touched the ark and God struck him dead and defiled the ark. The priests of Malachi's day were allowing faulty sacrifices to be offered on the altar. Not every priest is a good priest. I just say, you are, are you a good priest or a bad priest? Are you offering up good sacrifices or are you offering up, offering up faulty sacrifices? Are you even offering up sacrifices? Maybe you're not. Well, we ought to, as it says, living stones should work for him. That's where I get the phraseology there. We should be about offering up our spiritual sacrifice. It's just the commands of Scripture, what God tells us to do in response of, of our love for His Son. Will living stones come to Him? Will living stones work for Him? And here it is, thirdly, living stones believe in Him. This is verses 6 through 8. Now I find here even... Um, Lots of repetition, what is said before, because he's trying to ground his thoughts in Scripture. That's what verse 6 says. For this is contained in Scripture, right? This whole aspect about how we come to him, how we are priests in coming to him, and how there's a stone that we come to, but how others have rejected it. These themes come up, and you'll see this. The first, he quotes from Isaiah 28, verse 16. He says, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This passage comes deep in the heart of the Lord's condemnation to Ephraim. Telling about all the judgments going to come upon these proud, arrogant, wicked people. And then comes the promise of this coming stone in Zion. He says, this stone is going to come. He says, I'm going to lay it in Zion. It's a choice and precious stone. And the one who believes in that stone will not face the condemnation coming upon Ephraim. That's the context context of this passage. And so we can say, listen, you won't be disappointed. You won't be ashamed of his coming because he's going to absolve your sins through him. That's the message. 
And I think right here, it's a great text for Peter to bring up to those people who are suffering for their faith. I mean, certainly I can imagine Peter thinking about these scattered believers. The church isn't strong. People are ridiculing them. There's people who are trying to place doubts in their minds about their commitment to love to Christ. You're serving this God who was crucified. You're serving this unseen, invisible God. What are you doing? People mocking and trying to persuade them away. It says at the end of Second Peter that mockers will come with their mocking. And they're following after their own lust. And they're saying, where's the promise of His coming? For ever since the creation of the world, I'm sorry, ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as has been doing from the beginning of creation. They're saying, listen, Christ isn't coming back. Things now are just like they used to be. And things in the future are just like they will be. Why are you following all this religion stuff? These scattered aliens to whom Peter wrote knew well the trials and difficulties upon their life. When we get to the end of chapter 2, we're going to see the difficulties they face of dealing with governmental authorities and the trouble they have in their work environment as slaves and the trouble they have in their homes. And yet Peter's promise from the prophet Isaiah was a support and encouragement. And oh, may it come to you as a blessing today as well that he who believes in him will not be disappointed. The Greek construction of these words at this point are emphatic. It's a strong emphasis. You might well translate this. He who believes in Him will not in any way be disappointed. Or as many other versions say, He will not in any way be put to shame. He will stand unashamed of all of His Christian sacrifices which He offered to the Lord. I just ask you, do you believe in Christ? Do you believe in Him? Then you have this promise from the Almighty God that you won't be disappointed. Now, that's not to say that life's going to be filled with nothing but happiness. Sorrows and difficulties and trials will come in your life. Job said it well. Man is born for trouble. His sparks fly upward. We will face hardships in this sin-filled world in which we live. But at the end of the day, all the sorrow you face will seem as nothing as you enter the glory of Him. You will not be ashamed on that day when Christ is not ashamed of you. You won't be disappointed on that day despite all the sufferings that you have in this present life. Paul says, I consider the, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You know, and Peter's logic here is really pretty simple. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's his logic. If God is for us, who can be against us? Because, as this passage describes in verse 6, that this stone that Christ has laid is one that is choice in God's eyes. It's an elect chosen stone. Also, it's precious in God's eyes. Exact same words that he uses back there in verse 4. Here, if, if the stone is precious in God's eyes... Nothing else matters. His is the only vote that counts. This past Thursday was Thanksgiving. And um, probably, how many of you watch football on Thanksgiving? You always watch the Cowboys and the Lions, right? Well, after dinner, we had an opportunity to watch, I forget what game we were. We were watching football, okay. And uh, during the commercials, however, we flipped over to this show called How It's Made. 
You ever seen that show? I think it's a Science Channel or something. We don't have cable, so we don't we don't see it. We're at my brother-in-law's house. He's got cable, so we got to see how it's made. Show. It's a fascinating show, and um, particularly on Thanksgiving Day, it was how it's made. Do you know the show, Tim? You do know the show, of course you know it. It's a it's like marathon how it's made show. Like all day long, it just had these like five-minute clips about how everything was made. We saw how how um, bottle caps were made. We saw how plastic bags were made. We saw how ice skates were made. We saw how yarn was made, how hockey sticks were made, and all this, you know, just wrapping all these machines going all around. And it was, it was pretty fascinating. And, uh, but what I found interesting is that as we watched this television show is that people forgot that, that how it's made was the sideshow to the main show. And I remember one time when I, you know, we were right in the midst of seeing something made, who knows, like cranberries or something like that. I, I clicked back to the main show and heard some, hey, what are you doing? No, we want to go back here. And so I went back there and finally said, okay, guys, okay, let's take a vote about this, all right? And so we, we being the diplomat, I figured that'd be the, the best way to do it. And so we, we took a vote and, and I went around and, you know, it was very interesting is that all the kids and all the moms said, we should watch how it's made. And let put, and then all the dads, three of us, voted we should watch football. You know what? It's amazing. Dads won. Because each of the dads got five votes apiece. That's how it works. And so, how it's made continued to be the sideshow. Actually, we did bend a little bit, and we because the game was so terrible, I forget who it was. Someone was blowing them out, so we did make the other. But it was an illustration of what takes place here. The only vote that matters is God's vote. And when God looks at Jesus, He sees a chosen stone. He sees a precious stone. And Jesus was this one to atone for the sins of the people. Jesus was this one is to be valued above all other stones. And so I just exhort you, church, to place your hope in God's chosen precious stone because you know that you'll never be disappointed because it's God's vote is the only vote that's going to count. And in verses 6, 7, and 8, we see the devastation to those who don't believe. Right, verse 7 says, The precious value is for you who believe. But if you don't believe, it's not precious. In fact, as it says here, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The first quote here is given in verse 7 comes from Psalm 118, verse 22. which The psalmist says that same thing. The stone which the builders rejected became the very cornerstone. And I love this verse for several reasons. First of all, it was so prophetic Hundreds of years before Christ came on the scene, he knew that this choice stone people are going to reject and God's going to take that same rejected stone and he's going to place it as the very foundation stone. God knew this all along. And so, you think about the story. Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey. The triumphal entry. A week before the Passover. People are shouting. Remember what they were singing? What were they singing? Hosanna! Hosanna, son of, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Do you know where that Old Testament quote comes from? Anyone know? Huh? Did, I, did I stump you, Spencer? Psalm 118. The very same place that 
This passage comes from the stone which the builders rejected. It just came a few verses afterwards in the same context. Here it was God saying, Hosanna, O Lord, save us now, is what they're saying. So they're coming in, God, save us now, save us now. And they're rejoicing in that. But on one day the crowds were praising Him. But rather than receiving Him as their King, they crucified Him upon the cross a criminal. It's interesting. The very thing that the people tried to attempt to subdue and eliminate Jesus was the very thing that God used to raise Him up and exalt Him as the highest stone foundation of the church through which our sins are forgiven. His death has become the means through which we're justified. Later in Peter, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God. The righteous one for the unrighteous ones to bring us to God. It was His death that ultimately brings us to God. In this way, Jesus has become the most important stone in the church. The cornerstone here, there's all different types of discussion about what exactly the cornerstone is. I've heard it said that it's the, the peak of the arch. Right, it's the stone that puts all the pressure down on stones both ways. That might be. I think probably best is that in those days they laid one stone which became the plumb line from which everything was measured this way. It's measured this way. So that the building would be exactly square because they would always go off of this cornerstone. This stone which was the most perfectly cut took the most prominent place in the building. And that stone which they rejected, God says, I'm going to put him in the most important place in the church right there. Shortly after arriving in Jerusalem, Jesus told that parable to religious leaders, which I read earlier. Remember about the the vine growers? About the landowner planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, gave it in charge of the vine growers and then left. They sent these people to them and they, they killed them and bent them back, sent them back bad. And then finally said, if I send my son, they'll accept him. They sent the son to him, and what did they do? They killed the son. And the Pharisees got exactly right. The owner of that vineyard is going to bring those wretches to a wretched end, take them, cast them away, and give them other vine growers or give them their, their due. And then Jesus quotes, perhaps you remember, Matthew 21, verse 42. Did you never read in the Scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone? This came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. It says that God ordained that His Messiah would be crushed hundreds of years before it actually took place. Jesus knew full well He was going to be rejected by the Pharisees and Sadducees. But He also knew what His rejection would mean in the light and life of His people. And those people rejected the stone back then. And they still reject the stone today. There will always be those who reject the stone In fact, look at this third quote that he gives us here from Isaiah 8, verse 14. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. In this passage in Isaiah chapter 8, the Lord's speaking about how the people stumble over him. How they trip and fall over him. And Peter then rightly applies this to Christ. And the picture is clear. People walking right down the road. There's this stone in the middle of the street. And rather than walking around the stone, they come up right to it and they they trip and they fall over it. I've had it happen to me sometimes in dreams. Sleeping at night and there's this crack in the middle of the sidewalk. And I'm walking. I know I should miss the crack. And I know I should like walk around it. And I walk right up to it and I trip and fall over it. And I kind of jolt myself in bed. It's happened before. It's exactly what these people do. They They... 
they hear about the cross and they read about the cross and they think about the cross and then they don't believe. They say, ah, it can't be true. Actually, they stumble flat on their face. They think themselves to be highly educated. Oh, it's not true because of all these reasons, you know, and they stand up high. Actually, they're flat on their face. they got dirt in their face because they've tripped and fallen. But this would always happen. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block to the Gentiles' foolishness. And Paul's just using the same terminology because Paul knows Isaiah chapter 8 and Paul knows how they're going to stumble over God. Paul knows how they stumble over Christ and that's what they did. There are some who simply can't believe in a crucified Savior. It's interesting here of why they stumble. Paul says that, or Peter says at the end of verse 8, they stumble because they are disobedient to the Word. Rather than desiring the Word, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, they are disobedient to the Word. And in their disobedience... They can't understand. It wasn't last week I quoted from John Bunyan in front of his Bible. It said, Sin will keep you from this book. This book will keep you from sin. And in this case here, it's the sin that keeps them from the book. They stumble because they are disobedient to the Word. It's no wonder why they are disobedient in those ways. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, one of the things really interesting about that passage is that uh, people are going their own way. And they want to go their own way. And what do they do? They suppress the truth that they know in unrighteousness because they want to go their own way. And so it is with Christ. And so it is why people stumble. It's not intellectualism that leads people away from from the gospel. It's their sin leads them away from the gospel. And it can be your sin that leads you away from the gospel. They stumble because they're disobedient to the word. And then some of the most um, sobering words in all the Bible, and to this doom they were also appointed. To this they were also appointed. Appointed to be disobedient, unbelieving With these words, we see exactly how it is. The prophecy can be so accurate. How is it that God can predict hundreds of years beforehand that the stone which the builders reject is going to become the cornerstone? Why? Because it's marvelous in His eyes. It came about by His doing. That's what Psalm 118 prophesied beforehand. God was behind everything about how it is they crucified the Savior. You can read about that in Acts 4. It was God who decreed and brought up and raised up Herod and Pontius Pilate against Christ to do whatever He wanted them to do. See, because God doesn't merely predict the future with His foreknowledge. He plans the future in the exercise of His sovereignty. When these verses say that someone doesn't believe, there may well be a bigger picture going on. It may well be they've been appointed to be one of those who are unbelieving. It's a sobering truth. But this text is one of those instances in the Scriptures where we see the other side of election. The Scriptures literally flooded with references to God choosing for Himself a people out of their sin to come and see the glories of Christ. I mean, many, many passages of that. There are 
There are a few, though, that speak like this. So these people were appointed to this unbelieving doom. Pharaoh was an instance of that, God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Here we see uh, Romans 9 speaks about that. God preparing vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath. And here we see that people hardened in sin, appointed to unbelief. Now, at this point, you can have one of two options. You can deny these things, as many people do. This was, oh, that can't be. That, God, that can't be. Or, I think, is the better approach to accept what the Scripture says and pray, God, how can this be? Pray that God would give us understanding into these difficult matters. And realize that at the end of the day, God's not going to be blamed for anybody's unbelief. They will have themselves and their own sin to blame for their unbelief. Because everyone who comes to God with a willing and humble heart will find the Savior. And their belief, actually, is evidence that they are living stones about this whole passage speaks. Because living stones come to Jesus. And living stones are being built up and they work for Jesus and living stones believe in Jesus. And that's what this pastor is talking about. I'm talking about coming to Him. And I, and I would turn all those things and observations of living stones, I would turn them into exhortations. I say, come to Jesus. I would say, work for Jesus. I would say, believe in Jesus. And the promise is, none of us will ever be ashamed. None of us will ever be disappointed on that great day. Serve the Lord. I'm 40 now, and uh, and uh, there's blessing, blessing in our family, blessing in the church body, blessing from other people, blessing in the happiness and contentment that comes from the Lord. And um, the difficulties that we face are merely God's sovereign plan to to cause us to focus on the glory that's to come later. So there's blessing to be had. So I would encourage all of us to to be in that case. Let's pray, and then Doug will come and close our service. Lord, I pray you'd sink these things in our heart, give us access to you, communion with you. We would love to come to you. Give us hearts and hands and, that are willing and able to uh, do the work you call us to. It simply means to love others, to encourage others, to serve others, to exhort others, to cherish others, to stimulate others, all the one other pastors. God, give us... Give us the strength to work. And also, God, I pray you grant us faith. Even as we see here in, in verse 8, there are some who are appointed to the doom of unbelief. As you appoint to doom, I pray, Lord, that you would um, appoint also to faith. And so we pray that upon all of us who are here this morning. May today be a day of, of breaking the heart and bending the knee to a Savior to find the blessed life. I pray you'd work these things in your time and your way. In Christ's name we pray.